from Social Service Directory, I'm Jingyao. In November last year, the publication titled Skilled, Citizen-Led and Public Qualitative Research, a Framework for Citizen Social Science, explored improvements to qualitative research and suggested methods for the conduct of citizen social science. Drawing from two cases, one involving state and civil society organizations and public policy students, and another centered on low-wage migrant workers and the system processing their salary and injury disputes, we dive into the open access publication with its three author researchers. A link to the publication is in the show notes. Welcome to the podcast. I, I knew I had to reach out you know, to the three of you after a colleague retweeted your paper because not only was the research based in Singapore, but it featured the term, quote unquote, citizen social science. And citizen social science, you wrote and quoted, prioritizes greater hands-on involvement of lay people in scientific research. So doing it, designing it, understanding it, and debating it. So to give us kind of like the lay of the land, could you help us understand how it is different from traditional social science and more generally, what is the significance and importance of citizen social science? Hi, Jinyao. Thanks for uh, inviting us on the podcast. My name is Ijlal Nakvi. I am an associate professor of sociology at uh, Singapore Management University, SMU, which is where we all met. And I'm also currently the associate dean for curriculum and teaching at the School of Social Sciences. So your question about citizen social science and what makes it different. So in part, it's related to citizen science, which is like the, the natural sciences analog that we're drawing on. But here, I think uh, one angle that we're pushing is that it has a, a normative element. Citizen social science, it's telling you as a researcher, although we, we push towards you know, fundamental honesty and methodological rigor in, in what we do with our analysis, that doesn't change the fact that we accept that we as humans are a part of this production process. And we recognize our own role. We recognize the role of our, our co-producers. And this is in, it's explicitly normative. It has a democratic and emancipatory ideal. And education is part of that purpose. And education broadly understood as sort of the research paradigm in this sense. So you as a researcher, you are not just a data analysis and writing machine. Uh, there's an engagement with the world that follows as a result of citizen social science. Yeah. I'll just add into that. So my name's Nicholas Harrigan. I'm a senior lecturer in sociology at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. And I was during when we wrote this paper, assistant professor in sociology at Singapore Management University. To understand the difference between traditional social science and a citizen social science, I think it's worth thinking that Real, natural, traditional social science requires you to have a PhD. It's sort of the expectation. And often to be published in the top journals, you've got to actually be a full professor. So if you count the number of years of education, that is, it is, you know, we're not talking just getting 12 years of education or a bachelor degree and having a 15 or 16 years of education. You're talking about people who've required often to have gone through 20 plus years of education. And that is both quite a privileged position, but also it's exclusionary. And our idea with citizen social science, a core part of it is that we want to involve ordinary people, for want of a better word, in that process. And that then shifts the role that your the academic who's publishing in those 
who's who's run who's organizing the research it shifts them quite a lot so instead of being this expert in an you know ivory tower who is the knowledgeable one they are play something of a role of like a community organizer in at least in part where they are bringing together and training and through training emancipating citizens to and in our case we push to take on a public issue that is a contested one and often quite large scale not just one or two people but facilitating a community to take to drive that social scientific process so Nick, before we go into you know the, the the framework that you have for citizen social science with scaling citizen led and public tell us a bit more about qualitative research and the steps involved in qualitative research yeah it's a great question Jinyao. i think like so cuz I wouldn't have known what qualitative research was 10 years ago, I think. <laughs> Look, the distinction is drawn between quantitative, like quantity, which is numbers, and qualitative, which is what comes to the word quality, which is basically when you use words or text and you analyse them as that. So you don't go through and count the number of times someone uses a word in, or the colours in a text. You try and look at it. And the main way that you do qualitative research is you look for what are called themes, like repeated repeated elements that are in there. So you might, uh, yeah. And so qualitative research, concretely, there's lots of different types, but a lot of it involves doing in-depth interviews, or you can also have things like going through and doing textual studies, like people go through newspapers and uh, analyse those. In terms of the steps, so our both of ours involved interviews, which we then wrote field notes. So what would happen was in both cases, we do interviews with people who are experts in, oh, sorry, in my case, migrant workers. In Ijlal's case, he was interviewing people who are, say, social workers or members of these communities. And then we'd write up field notes. So you'd come after having done the interview, come home and write up maybe an hour or two, write up a few thousand words, and then the next stage after that was to go through and do analysis where you basically reread them and tried to identify the themes. So try to identify common elements. And then finally, when you go to writing it up, you pick out some exemplary quotes that really capture the essence of what's being said. And you use those and they sort of, that becomes like your data points where in a quantitative study, you might have a table and some statistics in qualitative data, you'll have a quote that will be exemplary. Okay. If I can just add one element to that is that after writing up the field notes very much as Nick described, students were required to do sort of notes on notes, which is a reflection element. So that's where you get to pick up sort of just like, I wonder if XYZ is happening. I'm frustrated because they didn't answer my question or I forgot this follow-up question or all of that. And it invites the student to come back to it with a personal engagement. And also this is where they are, are thinking about just exploring like what could have been or what they might want to do next time. So that reflexive element is also part of the process or can be. Ijlal is exactly right. It's and we it, the, the term in technical term, I think, is memo writing, right? Like, is that memos? Is that writing memos, Ijlal? I, I think people will name it slightly differently, but like I'll have them write a memo later, which is a more formalized treatment of that. So it's like you've got to dump this down in the moment. So for, I had a hard rule that you have to do this within 24 hours, because otherwise it's just gone from your mind, really. And then the memo writing is the 
is part of the systematic analysis where you're going to pull out one theme, like what are the quotes that fit in? How are these working? And it's more evaluative and building up a more coherent explanation of what's going on. That's how I treated it, at least. Yeah. And, and when I hear from the both of you, when you, know, you mentioned, it's almost like trying to unveil the knowledge production process or rather trying to make it less opaque because the words that you're using that's normative moving away from the experts and patients not that they're not important but they they, they can play a different role the two key terms i took from the both viewers democratization of of the knowledge production process and making it less exclusionary right and so trying to put I guess the next step for a lot of folks would be thinking about how then do we put this into action? Because to say it's one thing, but how do we then put citizen social science into action as you explained? So yours in the paper was a framework that had three kind of key concepts and elements. I wanted to kind of take them in turn because I think individually they're quite important and important to understand. So the three elements were scale, citizen-led and public. So Let's kind of like establish this common language. So first, what do we mean by scaled research in, in the context of what you were proposing? It's, it's good to put the pieces together that way. I think there's one sort of foundational element which underlies this, which uh, we, we do mention in the paper. I think we put some nice language around it. Uh, it's like that we, when you're strained for resources or something. So the answer is that we were flat broke. You know, we had no money. We had, we had no significant money to do like the substantial studies. There's no million dollars here, nothing like that. And it isn't the kind of research where you can necessarily spend a lot of money to get it done. It's actually like the hard work is in building up relationships with the people you're working with, with the people that you want to study with. So that it's both a push from necessity and some, and this, this framework arose in response to it. We wanted to do a certain kind of work. We were constrained by the lack of just simple money and that led to scaling. So scaling, it does mean size to some degree. We just, there's a simple element of more, more, more interviews, more field visits, more everything to do with that. But there's other elements that come with it, more eyes on the work. So there's a, you know, it's very easy for one person to fall victim to their own heuristics and biases. The more people you have involved and at multiple stages, you know, we have ways of sort of mitigating that and holding each other to account. You know, so it's like a inter sort of rate of reliability is sort of built in, baked into the entire process that we check on each other. And so this happens when you're coding interviews or when you're doing your field work, one person will see something that the other person missed and so on. I think there's, if there's one thing I want to highlight. This is absolutely not analogous to increasing your sample size in quantitative social science, right? This is not like I have more N, I have more degrees of freedom, I can do different types of questions. It is depth, right? So the, it's about the quality of data. And that, that's the essential difference is that the quality of data is increased through the, the increased effort, more eyes on it, uh, more people involved, more interviews and so on. Yeah. So those are some of the elements I think we can highlight. And if I can step in here, Nick, one other element to it, which I think drove us, but partly at least unconsciously, was we wanted it to be a democratic and transformative experience. For people like ourselves, I mean, in my, um, we were transformed through doing a lot of our studies. I'm sure Ijalal in studying low-income communities and for me studying migrant workers. And if you're going to be undertaking a project that's about democratization, you need quite a lot of people, you know, to involve three people in that project feels slightly less meaningful. And so our projects at least were designed so that a large number of people who didn't necessarily have a lot of time could get involved in that process and be transformed, transformed in terms of 
both engaging with the scientific process, but also transformed as in engaging with a public issue, you know, like the mistreatment of migrant workers, the struggles of low-income communities. And if I can just add into that, in my case, it was about recreating the experience that really politicised me in Singapore. I was happened to volunteer with Transient Workers Count too, and was invited at my first event to go and help do some data collection. And it was a, I got to, I interviewed like about 50, I mean, 50 young men who were younger than me who all had horrendous injuries and then had awful stories of treatment. And more than anything I'd read, that experience of meeting those people and doing the data collection really transformed my relationship to that public issue. And I think we wanted a lot of people to have a similar sort of experience. Yeah, and I wanted to bring a mirror in because the, the question here, the both of you have alluded to is the skill is motivated by not just greater accountability, but also quality and then, you know, the experiential part of this. But so I want to come to Amira and ask her about your experience, both in terms of the skill element of the research, but also your experience of being on, on the paper and project. Uh, hi, my name is Amira. I'm currently a consultant at a HR firm. I met, worked with Nick and Ijla when I was um, doing research at SMU University. So yeah, like coming back to your question, my experience of the whole citizen research was really about working with a large team to kind of organize the data analysis process. So I found that to be the most like exciting part or I would say complex and something we really had to work through. So with qualitative research, you can imagine that trying to, for example, code the data with like a group of maybe like 10 people would be a, a little complex because, you know, everyone reads the words or interprets the meaning quite differently. So we, through that process, we, we really learned a lot. And, and that's uh, part of the reason why we wanted to write this paper to kind of shed some light on the difficulties or like um, the things we learned along the way. So yeah, like some of the main points that we thought was like helpful is to, you know, have a really proper training for uh, the volunteer researchers that we work with and also to have a lot of like communication, uh, open communication, because we would try to gather and really discuss why we quote a certain uh, interview a certain way or why we think this is like uh, why or disagree with each other and then you know come to a consensus and I think that really added value to the insight that we gained from the interviews because you know it is, has gone through a, a lot of rounds of discussions and interpretations and yeah so that's one of the really huge benefits of of, of being citizen yeah and that's a really nice segue because when you mentioned training and communication we've been talking about the three key elements the first was skill the second is citizen-led research, right? And I guess a related question here would be, because this was something that Nick mentioned, the PhDs are not the entire process, but how are they positioned in this citizen-led research process? And um, so maybe kind of a two-parter. So what is citizen-led research in general? And then how do the, the research team, um, how did the research team position themselves vis-a-vis the citizens and those involved in the research? You want to start us off again, Ijlal? Yeah, sure. That's just a good question. I was trying to think through exactly how I want to answer. So there's a, there's a little bit of accident to how I ended up doing uh, citizen-led research. And that's because I was describing the public policy task force 
to a colleague and and she said because oh, we were studying not just low-income communities but uh, efforts at community development or basically like it's an an effort towards the delivery of public services and sort of social services but with an active role for the community and this kind of community engagement was the topic of study and the colleague said why don't you internalize that process in the student team and i was like oh that sounds fantastic and i had no idea how to implement that so really like it was very much about i had a framework that i drew on fung and rights empowered participatory governance and my students would tease me about it it's like this is prof's unicorn like how much he loves epg but like you know i stuck to it and there's a couple of sort of key phrases from it one is sort of reasoned deliberation how do you make decisions decisions are informed by reasoned deliberation it means you got to talk about it and explain the rationale behind why you support one thing or the other and like that's how within this framework even me as an instructor with a class of undergraduates when when we made decisions about how we approach different elements of the process they took a really lead role and that involved me deploying one of my favorite tricks as an instructor which is like i will just simply be quiet if i don't answer <laughs> your question you have to work it out mm -hmm. and you know you're on a deadline and you know you got to write the report and you got to do this and that and so that's in large part how we did it and my favorite class in the first time i offered it i had a pre-existing commitment to go to a conference and they had not addressed one critical sort of aspect of the course so we had had a makeup class but we still weren't there and so i told them you will meet at this time and you will work this out and they simply had to do it on their own and they said it was grueling and tough but they they managed it so it's like a dev devolution of responsibility is one key aspect of it right and then you you simply have to step back to let others lead the process yeah so the question is what's what is citizen led and i mean in our case what it meant what the way it evolved and again it evolved out of necessity in part and in part because we wanted to get the biggest bang for our buck for the research we were doing so in our case we got a very small grant like $10,000 and a group of us wanted to build the biggest kind of coalition of NGOs and academics and students that we possibly could to do a set of research that would then have a big public impact. And with the way we did that, because again, we couldn't pay people or anything like that, is we created effectively an organization that would meet weekly and it had open meetings and we'd meet at the university for an hour or two each week. And that met for about 18 months, basically. And by inviting more and more people to it, by having them do presentations and design parts of the study and so forth, we basically, that's that organization, which included a couple of PhDs or three PhDs or something, but included a whole lot of other people became the sort of governing body for the research and drove it and became, and that's how it was citizen-led, basically. It was designed by those people. Yeah, it's fascinating because there's so many elements to it, right? Like, so what I'm hearing was what Amir was talking about with training and communication. I'm hearing in the context of the university or the classroom or education, there's a little bit of devolution of responsibility, but it's also having the awareness to when to step in and when to step back and when to kind of give them space. And then finally, I kind of like the term when you say coalition building, because it's almost like folding them into the process, right? So having a governing body, but also 
involving them very intricately in the process. And, you know, this leads to the third element, which is public research. I think a lot of folks, when they hear public research, they think it's fairly well-defined, but I really like the excerpt you had from the, the, the piece. And I'm going to quote it from the piece and, and your wrote, public research often finds itself advocating for or against changes to existing public perceptions or legislation. And this is different to academic research objectives, such as creating generalizable, uh, generalizable knowledge. So, in that context, tell us more about public research. And I think you've also chosen to juxtapose public research vis-a-vis kind of more academic research objectives or the traditional academic kind of work in that sense. So tell us more about what you mean by public research in the context of the paper. I think uh, you'll get a better answer from, from Nick on this in part because the public research element of my classes rubbed up against the pedagogical element somewhat. So we had some constraints which were that in order to maintain the integrity of the learning process and to prioritize the learning process, right? We weren't like, we didn't take on an, any advocacy function and that wouldn't really have worked within our, our remit. Uh, so even though we were engaging with topics that were contentious in this way and that had an explicitly public dimension, which people disagreed on, right? The students weren't doing something like, they did not, for example, make a bunch of short YouTube videos about their first-hand experience, you know, first-hand camera footage, going around commenting on stuff. That would have been a lot of fun, but that's a different project, right? So we chose not to do that. And we had closed door discussions at the end of it because that was the only way, and this is, you know, I didn't try the other way, but this is the only way I felt that we were going to be able to convene the kind of conversation that we wanted. And so I'm doing another iteration of this at the moment, actually, which has uh, different topics and different public sector partners. But that's kind of the, the baseline bargain that we started with, that this is a closed door conversation. We privilege learning on the public issues. But I, I mean, Nick, do you want to talk about, Nick and Amira, really, the public side of it a little more? So what is public research in the way that we framed it? The core of it is that there, you are dealing with an issue on which there is a debate within society, conflict, and there is some sort of a public discussion around it. It's not just private. Now, you don't, and, and I think that Ijlal is a bit too ungenerous to his project because I think that it did deal with a public issue and it dealt with it within the ways that often is necessary in Singaporean society because of lots of constraints we all know about. And I think he did a hell of a, and he did a great job of it. To talk a bit about the publicness of ours and how it played out, the debate that we said to, we basically wanted to look at how migrant workers are treated during the injury and salary claim process. So if you don't know it, transient workers count too. I think it's still going, but they have a food program where they feed up to 500 workers a night, workers who have um, almost all of them have run away from their employers. Almost all of them have both injury and salary claims. And the, the huge number of them claim real mistreatment and injustice. And the non-government organisations have been trying to raise this with the government and contested and so forth, but the government will come back and constantly say, this is a marginal issue, they're not all telling the truth, this is not really a problem, et cetera, et cetera. And for us, that was the debate we wanted to speak to. We wanted to say, actually, we want to systematically, scientifically line up all our ducks and show that this it, there is evidence that this is a, is a real problem. And so that's, what, that's, that's how we did it. And that was the public debate we tried to contribute towards. And we did by collecting about 150 interviews. And then really, as Amira described, 
trying to do a very objective scientific kind of analysis of those interviews and then present it in a you know in a relative in an objective fashion yes and to add to that i think the public element is also to try and bring in all sorts of different non-academic researchers people with different like backgrounds or different occupations to you know come together and we would discuss about the issue and with the with our the labor court project we had that experience like we had students coming in we had of course the the researchers are in SNU we had doctors who were working with migrant workers we had the people from the NGO and and really we brought everyone together I think was a, a bi-weekly or like a monthly forum I can't really remember anymore but in those forums we talk about some the developments of the research project and like the progress of the findings along the way and then you would open the floor to like discussion and to debate some of the insights and the points gathered from from like the analysis process for example and I think that really helped uh, with like forming the end product which was like a, a report that we came up with that we then we distributed the report in a public setting we had like a launch and that further sent out the message that we were trying to bring uh, in this discussion around the migrant worker injury and cyber situation so yeah yeah, I, I think Amira, you you raise a really important point because I mean I'm only familiar with I'm more familiar with the Singaporean context, but there is a great deal of credentialism in, in the social service sector in the sense of like you can only do effective research if you come in with a qualification, if you have all these things. When in fact a lot of not just lived experiences, but on the ground knowledge is helped, as you mentioned, and the organizations and the non-research organizations the team has partnered with. And I think that's a really important point to highlight. And I also think it's a nice point to kind of talk about how we talked about elements of citizen, citizen kind of like social science in Singapore. And you've talked about the three elements, it being skilled, citizen-led, and it being public. And the paper details two research studies, right? Because both of you have been talking about the the labor court research project. I thought we should start there first, right? Because one of the studies was about the labor court research project, which two of you evaluated the system processing, as you mentioned, salary and injury disputes for low-wage migrant workers. Now, maybe before talking about it more briefly, could you give us like a snapshot of what the main findings were from the, the, the project itself and what are some of the key kind of policy points or highlights that, that were brought to the attention of, of folks who uh, might be in the policy space or into the government of Singapore? You're taxing our memory now. <laughs> I can, I'll start off, I'll just say, so it was a project that involved over 100 volunteers yep. that included lawyers, doctors, students, academics, NGO volunteers, NGO staff, social workers, and so forth. And we did qualitative interviews, so about one hour, maybe sometimes two hour interviews with 150 migrant workers from China, Bangladesh, and India. And I'm just trying to remember the headline slides that we had about what the main findings were. But we found that the, the, the problems were systemic and widespread, that there was a, it was a very slow process. There was, I mean, one of the, one, I just think of just one example that now comes to mind. One of the biggest injustices of the whole process was that no matter what happened, whether you'd been mistreated or not, you were going to get deported at the end of the process. So 
And for most migrant workers, the one thing they want is to be able to keep working in Singapore. Often these guys, if they were back in Bangladesh, could earn maybe $80 a month, and they were earning $800 a month in Singapore. And so if the price of justice is to be deported at the end of the process, there's no justice at all. That's the big one that I could think of. And so what we wanted was reform to the the way that the visas worked so that visas were held by the worker and not by the employer. Employers couldn't cancel them and that people would be able to stay in Singapore at the end of the process. Yeah, some of the other you know, recommendations that we had were to really look at the process for which like their claims were being like considered and, and, and therefore given like a decision with, with the Ministry of Manpower. So we do have some recommendations around that. We also worked with a lawyer volunteers who had like a legal background. So then they also weighed in around how some of the decision processes could be improved and to at the end of the day really it's about to see how the like the laws itself could change, but also the process on the ground, how the people administering the, the decisions, you know, could also improve with, with education and the points that we raised from, from the report. So yeah, maybe uh, Ijal can talk a bit, little bit about the public policy task force. Sure. Are we ready to go there, Jinya? Yeah, I was going to ask the, because that was the second part of the the, mm. the second study. And I thought as a way to kind of round up this part on the labor court research project itself, you're focused on the salary injury disputes. And we know since then that that's, that's one of the many problems in the patchwork of issues that migrant workers face. I guess a lot of folks who are listening to this might be wondering they're dealing with the other issues, right? It could be healthcare access, it could be the dorms and so on and so forth. How do you think your experience of using citizen social science can inform these groups and individuals who are interested in maybe not replicating, but in terms of extending the work you've done, but using the methodology or the, the premises of, of it being scale, citizen-led, and it being public? So what lessons do you think others can draw from that? I think one of the biggest things that we gained is uh, we really didn't expect that the possibility of pulling in so many people to kind of contribute to the efforts. And that was, it really helped us a lot because um, as, as Nick and Joy have mentioned, we don't really have the budget or the resources to kind of do such a large scale project. So I think it's about just starting the conversation with a group of people who have a common interest and seeing how much they are, how much time they're able to commit for us. It really was like a once a week or once in two weeks kind of effort where we brought people together. And then we were surprised at how, you know, committed the volunteers were and how everyone's individual efforts really uh, enable us to produce a report that touch on so many uh, factors, not just the on the ground like process of, of um, submitting the claims, but also the legal aspects, the medical aspects, and and all that. And it's only possible because we reached out to volunteers from so many different backgrounds. And I, I think that one of the biggest like thing that we learned it is about reaching out to anyone who might be interested in the topic and trying to see if they would like to be involved, even if it, they could only commit like an hour a week of effort. So, yeah. I would agree. I was going to say a very similar point, which is, I mean, the amazing thing, even how many years it is since the project, like four years, 
the number of people who are still involved and are actually involved because they got involved through the Labor Court Research Project is remarkable to me. The networks it created, the commitment it created, the transformative experience it created. And so for me, I think often when you move into doing a facilitating type role, it can feel like, and you're training people who are not necessarily experts, it can feel like a hard slog and not necessarily worth it. But I guess for me, the lesson actually is it is worth it. And academics are often used to using their privileged position to speak the truth or to do original research or whatever. But we also have the privilege of being able to, in a sense, be leaders who facilitate the involvement of others. And for me, the big takeaway is that that's worth it. You know, that being a leader who facilitates the involvement and growth of others is really worthwhile work that is really very rarely incorporated into academic research at all. Yeah, and it also holds a lot of promise because I think the constraints all of you described about, you know, uh, manpower and finances and everything else is likely experienced by many of these groups on the ground as well. They could use your blueprint as a way to extend their own research as well. And so, so far we've been talking a lot about the, there were two projects that were mentioned in the paper. One was the Labor Court Research Project. The second one would be the Public Policy Task Force on Community Engagement, right? And so, and also fill in the blanks if I'm not being clear enough, but basically from what I understood, it was a, research team of undergraduates learning qualitative research methods. They then did few work with civil society organizations and then they presented their findings at a closed door event. So I'm going to give you the chance to kind of fill in the blanks as to what I missed out, but what I'm interested in is, so what were some of the challenges that you faced? I think you alluded to one of them just now, which is that you had to work around it being closed door. Um, but what were some of the challenges that the team faced and what were some key feedback you received from the participating students across, I believe it was three years or three batches of students? Yeah. Uh, there were three years that I had done before I wrote the paper. And then I've done two more since. The challenges were many. And one, the first and primary challenge is the logistics of this, is that the academic becomes an organizer. And the one thing I need to organize is fieldwork opportunities for students. So after they do initial rounds of fieldwork, if they're engaged properly, they'll be able to generate more opportunities for fieldwork themselves. But my initial task is like is connecting with all of the organizations in order to make sure that there are opportunities for the students to go and have interviews, go and observe the different engagement sessions and all of that. And if you don't do that early on, you are going to struggle to get mileage out of the 15-week semester. So that's one aspect of it there. And this is, you are dependent on outside parties, there is a massive amount of logistical burden. And I don't, I, I'd say that for the average academic, the amount of effort required in mounting this course is three, four, five times amount of a regular course. So if you want like challenges of the team, and I'm including myself and the team here, is that this effort gets you no, no bonus points, no brownies, no nothing, right? You're doing it because you want to do it and that's it. Public research also doesn't count towards tenure I'm sorry to say, we have, um, that's a very pure, that's a, that is the elitist perspective of the academic. It's my privilege to be able to say that, but I'm also recognizing that for any junior scholars out there, if this sounds exciting to you, caveat emptor is like you, I did not either get mileage out of this towards my own academic research. Not yet, right? I want, that's also like, I'm lucky enough to be tenured. Now I can do that, but this is a different story, right? So those are some of the challenges. From the student perspective, they had to navigate other things. There is because 
there's a massive degree of sort of uh, amorphousness in terms of what they engage in terms of the problem. It's not like a problem set that you just sit down, you look at a textbook, you find the method, you deal with it. It's just simply nothing like that. So the intellectual burden on the students is substantially more. The time burden on the students is substantially more. Many of them asked for like, hey, you know, this should really be 1.5 or two credits rather than one. And I don't get that benefit and neither do they. That's the truth. But something that came out of this intensity of the experience was that they formed friendships among each other and with me, honestly. Like these students have graduated five, six years ago. These are the students that I keep in touch with, honestly. These are the ones I'm going to maybe have dinner with or, or catch up with likely later on. And that also is a, it's a bit of a lottery. Do you have people who are going to gel in the right way? Do you have the right circumstances? It doesn't always work out quite as well as others, but when it does click, it's fantastic, right? So there's some of those, those are, those are some of the challenges, but I think in terms of feedback, there's one or two other things that I want to mention. One is that I asked them at the end of the course, whether the course increased their commitment to public service in Singapore. I think I phrased it differently. It was an engagement with sort of public issues, not necessarily working for the government, but many did go on to work for the government. And I think like the, the response was like 4.5 out of five on a Likert scale that they absolutely felt certainly at that time that they wanted to stay involved. And I believe many of them, many of them did. Unfortunately, within the institutional context, this emphasis on citizenship as process, uh, participatory processes, these don't get a lot of love. So, you know, you do it because you want to do it. But I enjoyed rereading this paper for this discussion, precisely because it reminded me of something that I was missing in my other administrative engagements at the university. It's like, you do this because you want to do it, but it's very rewarding to the individuals who have this as part of their makeup. Yeah, because I, I, I guess my follow-up question would be, it's focused on this course, but you see yourself incorporating elements of what you've learned or what you've learned from your students um, to other elements of maybe your research or your, or your other forms of teaching in, in, in that context. Totally. So one, in terms of teaching, part of the reason I took on an administrative role is that I feel like this kind of uh, experiential learning, experiential learning, by the way, is very well supported at SMU. So partly it's how you badge these things, but engagement with the outside world and learning from it learning research methods through that process, through a hands-on process, like those are things which are very successful and very tactical and marketable within a, an educational context. So that's something that we're bringing out. Uh, we have a social science practicum at the School of Social Sciences, which has these elements in it. I'm working more and more with the Lien Center for Social Innovation to find ways to institutionalize support for students who want this kind of engagement, really. And so they're supporting two of these practicum efforts, for example. So there's all of that. And then I have in my own head, I do want to take on a longer term project, which looks at the nature of participation and how it's organized and the consequences for it. Because that was one thing that we learned in terms of like what were the substantive learnings is that participation is a, is a fickle beast. That is the benefits of it are as much art as they are sort of method. And you need someone sort of, it's almost like the leader of a jazz band style. Like I, I, I use that analogy, even though I know nothing about jazz or music, but it's like, you've got to feel it. You've got to pull it in at the right times, highlight this element, suppress the other element. Uh, there's a real sort of alchemy involved there that you make something work. And there's tremendous benefit in trying, to, in trying to make that work, but it doesn't respond to certain organizational forms. 
I'm going to ask the final questions to Nick and Amira. It's a similar final question to you in each that having done, having worked on this project and having reflected so thoroughly in the paper and through this sharing itself, you know, what are some elements that you've taken on in your future camp endeavors and work off? And a cliche way of framing it is like, what is the one thing or the few things that, that you've learned from this process that you would never expect it to have learned from when you started the project itself? So either Nick or, or Amira can, can go ahead. To follow on from Ijlal about it being alchemy, one of the things about participation is you really need to adapt to the circumstances and, and you don't know what those circumstances necessarily are <laughs> until you try it out. So I went back to Australia and I taught a research methods course and I tried to do a study of migrant workers and actually just temporary workers in Australia with my undergraduate class of 100 students at Macquarie University and my first year or my second year. And it just fell flat on its face. It fell flat on its face for lots of reasons. It was actually very hard for students to recruit. It was just too ambiguous what the question, how to do it was, how to do it and so forth. The next or year or two years later, I changed it so that the project was adapted. I won't go into how I did it, but it was much more constrained, but still had a lot of room for creativity and it's worked wonderfully, right? They've, they're actually looking at the way the media is a propaganda system and they do qualitative and quantitative studies of that and it's worked really well. So I think it's all about adapting to the skill sets, the interests, et cetera, of your, of, of your the time commitments and so forth. I tried to do a similar thing with my PhD student and we found it very difficult to implement a fully participatory model, but we have done some really good work. So I think it's just about, a lot of it is about adapting to the circumstances, to the resources you've got and the people you're trying to involve and learning from them through that process. So I think what I uh, really took away from, from this project is that with when you scale up a qualitative project or, or a public research type of project, it you don't only get like a product that is, you know, has a lot more data points to put it simply, but it really is the like the outcomes outside of just the research findings. Like for us, because we involve such a large group of people and they were committed to the project or they feel like they had a stake in it they then went on to contribute their, their time to other things. Like, for example, we I think some resources were created for migrant workers to actually more easily navigate or understand the claims process. And this was something that, you know, was voluntary and, and not a required or a necessary uh, deliverable for the research project. It was just something that volunteers wanted to do for the migrant workers to kind of help. And then there are all these other conversations that came out of it and even like today like which is I don't know I think four five years after having done the project I still have members of the project team reaching out to me and say hey I want to start this initiative to help migrant workers and how um, can you uh, help me uh, you know connect back with that network or like help me spread the message and yeah, people kind of become committed to the effort in long, on a long-term basis. And I think that's a really nice thing that came out of it. Thank you. Uh, I just want to say it's 
really refreshing that to hear all three of you, if your honest reflections, what worked, what didn't work, what were some of the challenges. Also, we don't really always get the chance to explore methodology in depth. It's always touch and go, but a big part of citizen social science is the methodology. And I think that was, that came through really well. And I think the third thing in thinking of the future, besides extending, adapting and contextualizing it, I, I really like the one about thinking the individuals who are involved and how it may or may not have influenced them in the long term in terms of public political participation and civic engagement. I think that's a few that is burgeoning and, and, and folks are always thinking about, but I think this you know, really adds to it and gives folks, not just in Singapore, but folks around the world who are interested to extend their form of public quality research as well. And so, yeah, I really thank the three of you for taking the time for, to record and, um, and, and join us today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Junya. Thank Thanks for inviting you. us, Junya. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you.